Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. So, good afternoon and welcome to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM at Chapel FM Arts Centre. I'm in Studio One with the Yorkshire historian, Catherine Waugh. Hello, Hi. Catherine. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. You're no stranger to Chapel FM. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you did a fantastic project with our young people last summer mm. about Roundtay Park. Did you enjoy that? It was it was a really great opportunity to work with young people and to produce a video celebrating the uh, 150th anniversary of Roundy Park and uh, a chance to actually make something. It was a real insight into your way of working because uh, obviously you've made countless vi- uh, well videos on you know, about mm. history, Yorkshire history uh, on YouTube, and uh, you're very well known for that. And it was a yeah a real insight into how you go about making a film and researching it and structuring it. So and I think it involved about six or seven of us, and we made a rather beautiful film. I thought mm. it was anyway. So yeah, I mean, just tell us all. We're here to celebrate your book, which is out recently it's called a yorkshire year we're going to hear about that we're going to hear some extracts from it and um you know it's, it's a really lovely book so first of all congratulations <laughs> it's really really nice um but yes yeah, first of all catherine if you wouldn't mind just talking about yeah how you you came to be writing the book and what you've been up to really for the last goodness knows how many years <laughs> yeah so so last month was my fifth year on youtube and saw my fifth year doing history. And so really the whole very quick backstory is uh, it was it was a hobby in my spare time at uni. I realised that no one really did Yorkshire history, so I thought I'd do that. And then as time went on and I realised that I didn't really want a, a normal job, a proper job, I thought, well, I'll, I'll do this history thing because that's sort of the only thing I had going. And then in terms of the book, the... How that came about was actually I was I was on a bus one morning and I was thinking about the book The English Year by Steve Rood. And it's a great book and it's a whole year of English folklore, customs and traditions. But I realised that it doesn't actually cover a whole year. It covers Christmas and Easter and festivals, but there isn't 365 days in it. And I sort of thought, well, well if someone wrote a book which did that, well, I could do that and I could do it about Yorkshire as well. So I, I just started writing it and that was that was in October 2020. So wow. quite a, a long time ago now, but it's over the next few months I wrote it and then I continued making videos and then I went through a rebrand where I, I expanded my interests beyond Yorkshire because I find all history fascinating and well, here we are. Well, it's, um, I mean, I think it's a great idea, you know, the idea of just going through the whole year day by day. Uh, but it must have been a hell of a thing to find something for every day of the year. It, it, yeah, it was, it was a bit challenging. What I was really helped by is the fact that my parents are hoarders. So they have literally hundreds of Yorkshire books. And I know they have hundreds because I catalogued them all and there were about 500. And so it was it was a, a case of going through all of these antiquarian Victorian books and, you know, regurgitating anything that would be useful. Some of them were things which had dates attached. And I was like, that's great. You can slot them in. 
but other things like recipes or folk songs or remedies, you put them in wherever. So towards the end, it was a little bit challenging to fill all the days, but I managed it because I had a mantra. I said, by hook or by crook, there'll be 365 days in my book. (laughs) I love that. So first of all, give us a taste of the book by reading maybe the entry for for today, which is June the 27th. I mean, it is a book about Yorkshire folklore. We'll talk about that in a minute and what folklore is. But with this will give us a, a bit of a flavour of the book. Yeah, so it's it's folklore, customs and traditions. It's basically anything, really. And, and for our purposes, I've defined uh, a tradition as any meaningful practice um, performed by a group over time. So it, it's very broad. Mm. Anyway, for the 27th of June, Thump Sunday is the name given to the Sunday after the feast of St John the Baptist in Halifax. The name supposedly derives from the fact that you were allowed to thump anyone who went to the pub and didn't pay for his drink. It was a traditional end to a four-day fair which began the preceding Thursday and which had, by the Victorian times, grown to become a considerable tourist attraction. It was estimated that 3,000 people alighted at Brickhouse alone for it in 1859. Thump Sunday was also a day when people would set off for seaside holidays with loud horns sounding at dawn to wake everyone up for the journey. Lovely. And that's also beautifully written, Catherine, because you've, you know, you've made it. You know, I, can, I can see those people arriving and I can hear the, the horns and the you know, you've, you've In a very short amount of space, you've actually conjured a whole, a whole custom, if you like, a meaningful mm. practice. I mean, something that was meaningful for that community. So, I mean, that, that's also, I mean, you must have put a lot of, of thought into that. Yeah. Like, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how I would, what I'd include, because there's a lot of things which aren't exclusive to Yorkshire, that they're, they're practised across the British Isles, but if they had something that made them interesting in a Yorkshire setting, then, well, that's, that's enough for me. Um, but there were ones which were, they were too broad, they were too generic, and they didn't have anything that particularly tied them down. Mm. And at the same time, I was, I was keen to avoid sort of the spurious uh, folklore that you find, what I call fake lore, because a lot of people, they'll, they'll just make things up. <laughs> and when I, I used a lot of books to write this in my research, and it got to the point where I could read something and go, well, I'm not entirely sure that that's true. Mm. But on the flip side of this, fake law is still folklore in a way. Because even if a Victorian writer just made something up, it's still valid because he's sought to include that for a particular reason. Mm. So in a way, you know, for particularly tenuous cases, I've, I've put a disclaimer in saying that I don't think it's legitimate, but I've included them because the fact that they were preserved tells us a lot about who was preserving them and why. Fascinating. Um, I mean, I, I, that's an interesting one about folklore and fake lore, isn't it? I mean, I, I, there's a friend of mine and his partner set up something called the Moon Raking Festival. Mm. I don't know if you know about that. Slough it, yeah. In Slough it. And it started off as a piece of theatre where, you know, they, they everybody made wonderful lanterns and then they scooped a sort of like a sculpture of the moon out of the, 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 the canal, out of the river. And, uh, you know, that became something that suddenly everybody started repeating every year. And now it's massive, of mm. course. And, and so... You know, in, in 100 years, I guess it may still be uh, done, but it was kind of invented by somebody. But I guess everything is, isn't it? Yeah, like that's the thing. You know, 
like all traditions have to start somewhere. Mm. And so like I've included a lot of contemporary things as well. I've got the West Indian Festival. Um, I've got more recent charity events, which have only been going for a couple of years. But I've included them because although, you know, they've only just started, they're still meaningful in themselves. Mm. And it's it's to expand our view of what uh, tradition is, because so often we tend to sort of tweify it and we think it can only be a tradition if it's 100 years old, mm. when, when really it's it's we've got to have a very broad definition. Well, it's it's. I mean, there's masses in there, and in a way, it doesn't. I, I, I'm looking at it now, and I don't really, I, I don't really mind if it's kind of true or not. Yeah. Truth is such a relative, yeah, a relative concept, isn't it? The, the 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 illustrations are absolutely beautiful. I mean, how did you come by them, and was there a whole rights nightmare? Yeah, well, it was it was it wasn't as tricky as I thought it would be, to be honest, because. I and my parents had a lot of pictures that we could use anyway from all our different adventures, which we obviously own the rights to. And then there's a lot of public domain images, especially. Mm. And then uh, there's Creative Commons as well, where you can use them, but you've got to give attribution. And I think the publisher licensed a couple of them, but it wasn't as tricky as, as... you think. I mean, everyone hears horror stories about having to pay hundreds of pounds for an yeah. image, but I never had that with this. Well, I'll tell you what, but it'd be great to hear another entry, and I'm going to pick December the 13th, which is on page 257, right. just because it's my son's birthday. <laughs> The guy trash, or padfoot, has an unusual association with water in Yorkshire folklore. Also known as bloody tongue, it was said to haunt a number of wells across Bradford and would either vanish or jump into the well if seen. As one witness recalled, when he, the guy trash, drank from the beck, the water ran red right past the bridge down nearly to Bradford. As soon as it was dark, he would lope up to the narrow flagged causeway to the cottage at the top of Bent Inn, giving a deep bark. We used to sit to look out for the dog in the filled-in pit which makes a hump in the middle of the field. Only one girl saw him. A girl who lived at Headley had to go back home one night alone. Her friends dare not go with her. They reached the end of the passage leading to the fields and gazed into the black well where Bloody Tongue resides, but could go no further. Bloody Tongue. Wow, fantastic. Steve Rude, now that name rings a bell. I think he wrote a book about Yorkshire folk... Um, no, but Yorkshire, about folk song, generally speaking, yeah. English folk song. Massive great tome. I think we've got it somewhere. I mean, it's... I'd really like to, to go back to your mum and dad because you thank them, you know, in your mm. acknowledgements. And, I mean, is is that obviously where your passion for history <laughs> yeah. came from? Um, so when I was growing up, every weekend I'd be taken to a castle or museum or historic house... So I was always surrounded by history and my parents would always go to car boot sales and charity shops and they'd be buying teacups and books and things. So I was always taking history books into school. So I've always been surrounded by history and very old things. And so when I look back and and sort of growing up, there was a lot of experiences I didn't have growing up. I was never taken to sports matches um, I was never taken to theme parks or to the cinema or even to McDonald's. But instead what I got was taken to all of these historical places. You know, we didn't have Sky Sports, but we had English Heritage and the National Trust. So is that sort of inculcation of history. 
And did your parents do that professionally or was it just an interest for them? It, no, they were just interested in it as a hobby. You know, um, they, they had really nothing to do with history. It was just a day out for them. <laughs> That's amazing. And I mean, some people, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? So some children might have gone have gone the other way as adults. Right? I've had enough of history now. <laughs> I'm going to get into, I don't know, sort of uh, rugby or something. But, but you haven't. You've, you've, you've gone with that. And um, that's proved to be a real fertile ground mm. for, your, for your present interests. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I sort of, when I got to a teenager, I didn't bother with it and I didn't really have an interest in it. And I didn't actually do it at A-level because I, I didn't get enough uh, get a high enough grade for GCSE in the topic. So I sort of, I kind of mellowed in my interest whilst I explored other things as teenagers are so want to do. But then it was when I got into uni and, and as I already said, I sort of realised that there was no one doing Yorkshire history. And admittedly, I was, I was a bit mercenary in why I chose Yorkshire history because it was, it, you know, when there's so many people doing British history, military history... There was far less competition, and also I had all of these books in the, in the house that I could use, so mm. it was it was a lot easier. But that kind of sparked it back in me, and I think what I find actually the most interesting element is is the storytelling. It's being able to tell a story to people and to take something which can be quite complicated and make it quite accessible and engaging. Yeah, and also uh, academic. I mean, I, th- I mean, obviously, uh, some people are put off by any- by by that something that looks a bit highfalutin and kind of yeah, it's a bit over my head. But you actually, your YouTube's um, your YouTube videos are so direct, and you have a very direct style, and you're so clearly totally engaged in what you're doing. I think that's uh, that's. That's riveting, actually, when you watch. When you, and and you brought the same quality to your book. I think that's the, you know I can hear the tone of your voice, <laughs> yeah, the storytelling voice. And we're going to hear a piece of music now um, by Jake Thackeray. And I was thinking of this just before we were having before this program. Catherine and I have we're having a cup of tea, and I and I suddenly thought about this film that Jake Thackeray, the songwriter, Yorkshire songwriter, made in Swaledale, and it's a, probably from the 1960s, with him just travelling around and writing some songs about what he finds and interviewing all sorts of people. Uh, so I, I tried to find a song from the film, I couldn't find one, and then I thought, oh, I'll, I'll pick a Jake Thackeray song that looks like a folk tale, and I just saw The Castleford Lad, and I thought, that, I don't know it, but that'll be great, and then it turns out that they'd cut off the rest of the word and the title it was the, the Castleford Ladies Mystery Circle magic magical circle. magic <laughs> circle so we're going to hear some of that now the Castleford Ladies Magical Circle meets tonight in an upstairs aspid distro room that's lit by candlelight Where Elizabeth Jones and Lily O'Grady and three or four more Married ladies practice every week unspeakable pagan rites Dressed in their Sunday coats and their flowerpot hats Respectable middle-aged ladies running to fat at that there's Elizabeth Jones and Lily O'Grady and three or four more married ladies, each with a Woolworths broomstick and a tabby cat. 
not, they don't waste time with a Ouija board or a seance now and again. No, none of your wittering, twittering, petty poltergeists for them. No, Elizabeth Jones and Lily O'Grady and three or four more married ladies prefer to be tickled by the whiskery chins of bogeymen. Their husbands potter at snooker down the club. Unaware of the devilish jiggery-poke and rub-a-dub-dub While Elizabeth Jones and Lily O'Grady and three or four more Married ladies are frantically dancing naked for Beelzebub And after the witch's picnic and the devil's grog After their savage pantings, their hysterical leapfrog Well, Elizabeth Jones and Lily O'Grady and three or four more Married ladies go back home for Coco and the epilogue So, be careful how you go of a Saturday night If you see a little old lady passing by It very well might be Elizabeth Jones or Lily O'Grady Or one of those satanical ladies Their eyes are wild and bright Their cheekbones all alight Don't go where they invite Because the Castleford Ladies' magical circle meets tonight So you're listening to Love the Words on East Leeds FM at Chapel FM Arts Centre. This is actually the last Love the Words in the present uh, season. We'll be back in September. This is season four. And you can listen to all of them back on our website. Uh, just go to the Ch- uh, Love the Words page on the Chapel FM website. You'll you'll find all the programmes there. And... Um, yeah, so we're talking to Catherine War, the historian, about her new book, which is Folklore, History, Traditions, A Yorkshire Year, where Catherine has has uh, gone through each day of the year and found something, some Yorkshire kind of community activity that, uh, that, that's that been celebrated in the past. That was Jake Thackeray um, singing a song about Yorkshire witches. So I've asked Catherine to find something from the book about witches. Have you got something? Yeah, there's there's quite a lot about witches. Um, this is quite a short entry, but what I like about it is that it's, it's a real uh, contemporary account. The ducking stool was often used on those accused of witchcraft, as seen in this diary entry from 6th of July, 1699. Susan Ambler was whipped and put on the ducking stool for causing an evil spell on Adam Clark's sheep. He only got two score lambs and nine were black ones. This was at Stokesley. Oh, wow. That sounds a bit harsh. <laughs> I'm not sure how you really substantiate that claim of Adam's, but there you go. Fascinating. And that's just, you know, just one entry from, from your book, which is, you know, nearly 300 pages long. It's every month and every day. And a leap year as well. And a leap year as well. <laughs> it's an extra entry. Um, just to talk about history more generally in terms of um, how history is taught, Catherine. Do you think um, there's a lot of talk at the moment about how you know the humanities and in, in, in uh, university and schools are kind of declining? Uh, do, I mean, how do you feel about history and the way it's taught in in this country? I suppose mm-hmm. is what we all we know about. I think it's it's a very subjective experience because I know people who've said that you know a particular history teacher really made it fun for them. I can't relate. But, you know, I think history has to be taught well for it to be interesting. 
And my experience of history at school, uh, I think it was very average in that I didn't really enjoy it. You know, it was just a load of Weimar Germany and mm. lots of, you know, World War One treaties. And they're very important and you need to learn them. But when you're 14, learning about this obscure 1920s international treaty isn't isn't very exciting. Mm. And actually, children and young people do have a great hunger for knowledge. They, they have this desire to learn. But often what we teach them isn't actually what they're interested in. And I think maybe if if we broadened the way we taught history or the topics we taught, a lot of people would, would be more interested in it. I mean, local history doesn't get taught at school. It seems to be sort of shunted off to the local OAP, local history group. But actually, a lot of people are interested, and young people as well, in, in the where they grew up and where they live. And if they learn more about where they live, they, they feel a better connection to it. Oh, I was going to ask about that. You anticipated my question that because it's no absolutely spot on. I mean, I think it's you know, I, yeah. How much about our how much of our sense of connection to a city is about just being here for a while, perhaps being brought up here? But yeah, it's, it could be so much more strengthened by a knowledge of local stories, if you like. I mean, maybe the word history is the problem. Mm. <laughs> and just local stories, you know, about the past and knowing what was literally happened in the place where you're standing. I mean, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Do you, I mean, in terms of, of uh, you know, obviously the book is out there and it's, I'm sure it will do very well. I mean, it's, it's as I said before was we were just coming into the studio it won't date will it (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's there and people can look at it it's not it's not going to go off um but you know and you've got the book are you going to continue your youtube uh, films yeah i mean that's that's a that's a plan for the moment we the we we have so many ideas in the works that we're just going to keep making videos um in terms of writing another book um I, I'm not ruling it out because I do genuinely enjoy writing, but I don't think it'd be for another few years because mm. although I enjoy writing, the process of publishing is very, very long and slow. Um, and at the minute, what I enjoy most is just uh, making films. I enjoy being in front of a camera and and behind the camera. And that's kind of what I want to focus on at the minute. And do you, I mean, some people might say, oh, Catherine really should become, you know, like, Professor Catherine War, you know, the University of Leeds or Oxford or Cambridge or, you know, because you know so much and you, you're so eloquent and articulate about history. Is that, is that something that in, sort of is in your ambition book? <laughs> Not really. I mean, part of my, my mission and my brand image is to, is to de-academify history in that there's nothing wrong with being an academic, but when I was growing up, the people I watched on TV it was Fred Dibner and Mark Williams' Industrial Revelations. Mm. And when you hear people who have your accent and they have your background, it lets you know that, oh, I can do it as well. But you look at TV now and it's Dr. So-and-so from a Russell Group Uni with a RP accent. And, you know, there might, there might be brilliant historians, but it sends a message to people like me that you've got to be a particular type to be a historian. And so what I show people is that, no, you don't have to. You know, I don't have a history degree. I didn't even do it at A-level. But what I have is the skills and the knowledge to, to make it work. So I do get people saying that I should do, you know, a, a master's or a PhD, but I just have zero interest because I'm quite happy doing what I'm doing now. <laughs> 
and you're reaching people very directly through your films mm. and also through the book. Uh, and also, I suppose, yeah, I mean, you're young. I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's the great thing. You don't see many young historians on TV. They all seem to be kind of my age yeah. or, or beyond. But it's, <laughs> how old is that? But it's kind of, you know, it's, 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 it's you're, you're a young person. You're a, you're a woman mm. doing it. And I think that that is, that's, and you've got, as you say, you're, you, you, you're totally embedded within your place, which, which is Yorkshire. When you say you're looking to sort of, sort of broaden, go beyond Yorkshire, mm. some people might ooh, be <laughs> suspicious of that. But what, what, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, because I, I find everything interesting. I've got so many interests. I've, I began to feel constricted for two reasons. One is the... Um, is it why why limit myself to just one arbitrary choice of topic? But also, I was I, I was getting very uncomfortable with expectations that I ought to be the type of a up white rose God's own country, which is just not me. That's not like I I don't like that stuff at all, really. And I kept feeling forced to be a particular person, and you know, not not to go all um, egoistical, but I felt a bit like Bob Dylan when he was turning electric. <laughs> In that, you know, he just wanted to, to explore, but people wanted him to be how they wanted him. Anyway, so I find I find so many different things interesting and we've really broadened um, the stories we tell now. So we started off the year by looking at the Vietnam War and popular memory. Completely different to Yorkshire, but it's fascinating. It's very relevant today as well. Mm. We then uh, made a trilogy of pirate videos. We're working on something about cowboy and western films in britain there's so many fascinating stories to tell so i i don't see myself to limit myself to a topic and why should you absolutely you have the skills to to research and communicate and research is i mean again i think a lot of perhaps a lot of people don't really know how to research where to go how to you know how to forage and sort of you know rummage about in history and find those sort of gems i mean that's presumably something that you you can impart to people. I mean, do you, do you, I mean, I know you worked with us last year for a short time, but do you work with groups in terms of teaching people how to, young people or any of age, any age to, to how to research? It's something that I've, I've helped out with because uh, I'm digital content coordinator for the British Association for Local History. Mm. So we've done webinars on, on using different resources uh, but the actual research side is, is not something I've, I've taught directly to people, but I think that they've sort of osmosized it through the process that I describe in my videos. Because one thing I do is that I'm, I'm very upfront about any, any holes in the narrative. So I made a video last year about William Bradford, who was from Osterfield near Doncaster, and he sailed on the Mayflower in 1620, was the first governor of Plymouth Colony and the first historian of Plymouth Colony. So it's a massive, massive figure in mm. early colonial America. And I was really, really surprised with him because instead of just going over there and deciding to, you know, kill all of the natives, he was, he was trading with them. He was um, making treaties. Um, the, the doctor helped heal one of the, the chieftains. And I thought, this is really unusual. And so then I made the video and then I filmed it and then I was reading another book afterwards and, I, and then I found out that actually he was witness to this, this horrific massacre and he wrote it down in, in detail. And I was like, 
oh gosh, this is a bit awkward. <laughs> so I had to hurriedly film this this little bit saying, you know, I've just discovered this mm. bit, which obviously completely changed the tone of, of the video. Mm. But kind of the, the point is, is, you know, the viewers discovered that history is just a process of, of learning and that actually we, mm. we don't as much tell the facts as discover them and then retell them. Mm. And so... That's, you know, having an openness in the process of history and uh, to witter on, but give you another really good example. I made a video about the Almond Hill Fort in Huddersfield and I got from a charity shop this 1939 excavation report. And it was fascinating because it said that it had been burnt in about the first century AD. Now, this was interesting because the uh, Celtic queen Cartimandua who was queen of the Brigantes, had led a rebellion against the Romans at around that time. Now, this is one of the biggest hill forts in Yorkshire, so I thought, aha, maybe the Romans had had destroyed it in battle. And so I was like, this is a great idea. I've discovered something totally new. I am so clever, right? <laughs> well, then I read this more recent archaeological report and it turns out they, and the funny thing is they'd gotten in uh, people from the Yorkshire Coal Board who were experts on coal fires. They found it had spontaneously combusted about 10,000 years ago. So way before there were any Celts or Romans, it had just, like the wood had, had dried and it had set on fire. So the the entire story then I was going to tell about the hill fort had to change. And that's the process. And I, I I shared that process with the viewers and went, well, this is a thesis I originally had. And then in the light of this information, this is what we know now. Well, that's, again, a really interesting, isn't it? And it, I suppose it's a bit like science in that mm. regard. You know, if somebody has a theory and then, some, you know, so, sorry, Einstein, but it's actually a bit <laughs> different, you know, 100 years later. But, that, I mean, that's fascinating. And I suppose it's that sharing of the of the process that's the, the important thing. If you'd gone, actually, I, was, I, I wasn't quite accurate and I wish to amend the record, mm. then it's not nearly as interesting as you saying, you know, I, I came across this thing and I thought, well, what am I going to do about that? Well, why, on the one hand, you know, and then you're, you're, you're explaining your method. To, and that's, that's a kind of story in itself. No, absolutely mm. fascinating, fascinating, Catherine. Yeah, and I think, I, you know, I really wish you all the best and, uh, you know, I really hope you come in here and do some more stuff with us because it would be great to learn more from you. Yeah, thank and, you. And you can turn some more uh, young people onto history because I think, you know, when we went up to Roundhay Park and did what we did, most of those those people were young people. I, I had done a lot of research, but young people did not know about the park, and I'm sure they go back there and see. Because once you once you see something that is um, kind of uh, yeah, you've got some history. You know, you, you you every time you go there, you kind of that's in your mind, isn't mm. it? It sort of stays with yeah. you that story. So um, yeah, hopes for the book. You want it to go worldwide. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, I mean, it's taken a while Book to get here. So obviously I want it to uh, to become, you know, the kind of industry standard. Um, I do think, if I say so myself, it is the, the largest single collection of Yorkshire folklore customs and traditions. And uh, a review recently by uh, Francis Young said that, it you know, it is an essential book for anyone interested not just in Yorkshire but in 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 English and British folklore and customs so I I have big hopes for it absolutely and let's just before we 
Uh, oh, but just to say, yeah, stay tuned because we're going to hear an interview with uh, some bell ringers from St James and Seacroft, which does actually tie in with what we're talking about because the history of the bell tower, the history of the church, the history of bell ringing in this in this country and in Leeds is absolutely fascinating. Uh, so we're going to be hearing from from them in a few minutes' time, and thank you to them for taking part in in our recording because I mean there isn't much room up there actually, <laughs> so uh, they they put up with me being um, being up there asking them questions. But yeah, let's hear one final piece. I've opened this quite randomly on page 75, which is the 7th of April. Ah, this is this is actually my favourite oh, entry. Great. I was going to ask you what your favourite <laughs> is. So this is the, the 7th of April. It was a common belief across the British Isles that fairies could swap human babies for children of their own, known as changelings. Reverend Thomas Parkinson, writing in 1889, recorded that... Near Grassington, there is a hole in the rock, or cave, still known as the Fairy Hole, and for many years there resided in the town a poor deformed woman who was regarded by many of her neighbours as having been in her infancy a fairy changeling, and it is to be feared she was frequently treated accordingly. Those born with disabilities were often seen as changelings, and this passage gives us a rather sobering insight into how disabled people were treated in the past. Brilliant. So that's uh, an excerpt from A Yorkshire Year by Catherine Moore. And uh, yeah, you can get it. Uh, how, do you, how do you get the book? You can get it online. Uh, it's also available at your local independent bookshops. So it's, it's quite easy to get hold of. Right. Well, go to that. And I, it's, it's the best uh, few quid you'll spend all year. Um, so thanks, Catherine. Thanks for coming in. See you again soon. We're going to now hear from the bell ringers of St James, which is just up the road from us by Seacroft Green. Yeah, my name's Tracy Harrison. Uh, well, tonight uh, is a practice night here at St James's for bell ringing. Um, we have a, a nice set of six bells here uh, with probably about six or seven learners, including myself. Uh, we're all learning here. Um, uh, I'm actually learning to teach, which is really good. Uh, I actually started ringing probably about seven, eight years or so ago. Um, uh, a, f a friend came up from Skulls, um, and said, I'm going to go up to the tower if anybody wants to come and have a look and maybe even have a go, uh, pop up. So I went up, had a go, and ever since then I've been hooked. It's, uh, yeah, it's basically a, a team of ringers. Um, ideally, one for each bell. Uh, as I said earlier, we've got six bells here, so one for each bell uh, would make six ringers. Ideally, with a few backups, just in case people can't make it. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, as I say, I was connect. I've always been connected with the church for since nineteen ninety something or other, I believe it was, uh, when I was actually down at the Church of the Ascension down in South Seacroft. Uh, then obviously, when that church closed, I came up here, and I've been here ever since. Initially, back in eighteen forty-five, I think it was built. There was a set of three bells, very heavy set. Um, 
I don't even think there was anybody ringing him then, to be honest. Uh, I, um, so, yeah, back in 1984, those three bells were removed, taken down, uh, sent to John Taylor's in Loughborough, broken up and cast into a, a set of five, um, which we had up until 2019, when we had a sixth bell cast and installed for us. Um, I mean, those th- th- these bells make a, a magnificent sound. Um, and obviously each bell has a different sound, and each church with a set of bells have a different sound again. Um, obviously, the, the bigger the bell, the deeper the tone, um, and the bigger the tower will determine how many bells it can fit in. Uh, as I say, here in, at Seacroft, we've got six uh, I know there is another tower somewhere else, in fact, in, up here in Thorna, uh, which has got eight bells. And then even going into the Leeds City Centre, where the Minster is, they've got 12 bells. So, Claire, first of all, yeah, you've, you're just learning. How many sessions have you been to? This is probably the fourth, I think. Yeah, third or fourth. Yeah, yeah third or fourth, yeah. Um, I'm definitely better this week than I was the last time I came. <laughs> What's... What, yeah, why, why do you why do you come? Just for a good laugh, really. Tracy roped us into it when she came to my husband's work and said she was doing the bell ringing. So yeah, so we've come and given it a go. Yeah. yeah but it's quite it's quite hard work, isn't it? It is hard work. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you really. It looks easier than it actually is. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> A quarter peel um, is a set of methods that lasts for 1,260 changes, which generally takes anything up to about 45 minutes to ring. Um, And they can be of of various methods. Uh, When I say methods, we're possibly talking a method like plain bob doubles, uh, grancer doubles, uh, Steadman doubles. All depends on what that conductor is deciding to do at that time. But generally, it's 1,260 changes in about 45 minutes. It's, yeah, an kind of unusual thing to be doing. I guess it's other people could be, uh, you know, lots of people do sports or other kinds of things. So, do you think you're carrying with it? Yeah, I think I will actually. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. Would you recommend it? Yeah, I would. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a good laugh, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, mm. there's a good crowd there, so. And it makes a great sound. It does, yeah. I'm not, not sure the locals agree <laughs> as to what it sounds like outside. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm in my mid-50s, um, and I've, as I say, I only started seven or eight years ago. Mm. Um, but, yeah, you can actually, depending on your size, I would say, the taller you are, the better you are. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be of an age. Ideally, 10 years and up would be nice uh, accompanied by a parent would be lovely but yeah the younger you are the quicker generally you pick it up I actually ring with a 14 15 year old lad now uh, when I ring at Chapel Allerton um, and he is absolutely amazing far beyond where I would ever wish to be to be honest um, I've got no chance of catching him up as much as I'd like to. 
Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Yeshuva Kaim